listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this hour. We have plenty to get through this hour. Later on in the program, we are going to get an update on what's going on with the Peel police after a man has died after being tasered. And we are going to talk about use of force. I can tell you that the Special Investigations Unit is updating the media right now. We will take you there shortly and get you the very latest on that. We are going to talk about the Lowe's situation and what that means for your local uh, big box hardware store. And also in the program, we're going to talk about the Grammys. And we're going to give you a sense of what's important about the Grammys and what you need to know. A bit of a cheat sheet and the ongoing dumpster fire that is the Sondland testimony that is going on right now south of the border. All of that ahead on the Alan Carter Radio program, but we begin, as we often do, at Queen's Park. And Premier Doug Ford's decision to tear up almost 800 green energy contracts has now cost the Ontario taxpayer more than $230 million. The progressive conservative government said the final figure, which includes the cost of a decommissioned wind farm already under construction in Prince Edward County, has yet to be established. Now, the government canceled all of these contracts last July, saying the move's going to save ratepayers. But the government said it's going to introduce legislation that would protect hydro consumers from any costs incurred from the cancellation. But at the end of the day, somebody is going to have to pay for all of this. And what is it with this province and successive governments paying millions upon millions of dollars to not build things. I'm just going to shovel a whole lot of cash right out the window. What do we get for it? Well, we're not building that thing. That's what we're going to get for it. What? So here's the play in Queen's Park in question period today, because I want to take you through this. An extraordinary bit of drama in Queen's Park, and I'm going to explain it to you in a way that you're not going to hear anywhere else. We're going to begin with the lead question from the NDP leader, Andrea Horvath, asking about this whole $231 million and the fact that the government had insisted that canceling these green energy projects wouldn't cost us a dime. So why did the government claim that there would be no cost to Ontarians when in fact ripping up these wind energy contracts is costing at least $231 million? Pointed question to the Minister of Energy, Greg Rickford, who a number of times stood up and just attacked the NDP, said, well, this is all your fault. What? What's all your fault? Here is more of the government line from Greg Rickford, the Minister of Energy. We took appropriate, responsible action to deal with more than 750 projects that communities didn't want and the grid didn't need. They were costing us, Mr. Speaker, anywhere from 17 to 50 cents uh, per price per kilowatt per hour, Mr. Speaker. We won't stand for that. Ratepayers certainly won't stand for that, Mr. Speaker. And we stand by those changes. That is the Minister of Energy, Greg Rickford, saying they stand by the changes. But, wait a second, what about that number? Does that ring a bell for you, anybody? $230 million? Gas plants, anybody? Gas plants! You remember the gas plants, I'm sure you do. The Mississauga cancellation that was made as a late campaign promise by the Liberals on the eve of the 2011 general election. Oakville had already been cancelled. 
immediately after the election, the liberal government, which won a minority at the time, stated that the cost of the cancellations was, wait for it, $230 million. Yep. Only cost $230 million to cancel those two gas plants, including the one here in Mississauga that was already under construction. Well, turns out that wasn't actually true. Because when the Auditor General of Ontario looked into the books, it turned out it was more like $950 million, rounding up for a cool billion, billion dollars to build nothing. And obviously that scandal has reverberated over the years, and the progressive conservatives jumped up and down and shouted and talked about a giant waste of money. So, is the $230 million number that the government, or at least that has been reported now on these cancellations, is that, is that true? Is it going to stick? Now, I can remember when the Liberals sat where the Ford government sits now and lowballed the cost of the gas plant scandal. Can the government guarantee that their $231 million number will not climb any higher? Good question there from Andrea Horvath. How do you guarantee that that number is not going to go up? Well, I'll tell you one thing. We're not going to find out about it. Because this is the difference between a minority and a majority government. Back in 2011, when the Liberals won that minority, and they canceled the gas plant, and then they said, it's $230 million. Everybody does nothing to see. Move on. Well, because it was a minority situation in committee, because the opposition has more members than the government does, the, the other two parties can get together and say, well, you know what? We'd like to see all the correspondence related to that. And the government said, can't do it. Can't, can't give you that. Can't let that happen. That's a proprietary thing. And they were ruled that that was not true. And they were forced to give over all of the documents relating to the cancellation of the gas plants. And you may recall that this is what chased Dalton McGinty from office. It's because the government said, okay, fine, fine, here are all the documents, get all the documents, go away now. And then a couple of days later, it turned out, oh, wait, (laughs) there were more documents that we didn't turn over. And next thing you know, Dalton McGinty resigns, prorogues the legislature, Kathleen Wynne comes in, and you know the rest. So we're not going to find out the same kind of detail on this that we found out about the gas plants under the Liberals, because it's a minority, or a majority now, for the Ford government. It doesn't have to give over the stuff. There's no way to compel it to do so. You know, and while we're talking about all of this, what is it with politicians saying words that nobody else ever says? Here's Andrea Horvath illustrating my point. The government side doesn't like to want to talk about their boondoggle, although they talk a lot about the liberal boondoggle. But I'm actually talking about the conservative boondoggle. Boondoggle, 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 boondoggle. Who says that? Boondoggle. Nevertheless, the opposition here is making some hay. They're smacking the government around. You can follow the play-by-play here. The NDP leader is really going after the jugular here of the Minister of Energy, and he just keeps going back to his talking points. And things are starting to get tense. The tension rising in the House. What's going to happen next? Then, the government House leader pops up and says this. 
I, I appreciate that this is not normal, but uh, uh, and and I apologize to the entire house for uh, the mix-up uh, today. I assume responsibility for that. I know this is completely a, not a normal course of action, uh, but it's been raised to me that uh, the community will not be here towards the end of question period, and that uh, that there perhaps is a legislative requirement that it be done before question period. So I beg forgiveness of the house for this intrusion. Question period will continue for the full length of time if you're in agreement, Mr. Speaker. But I ask for this unusual. Uh, uh, given the importance uh, of, uh, of this. Uh, all right, that is Paul Calandra. And what he did there, it, would you get that? He stands up in the middle of question period and says, we need a moment of silence for transgender rights. We, we all got to just stop. So this is akin uh, to, in a hockey game, it's a three-on-one breakaway, pass in front, open net. Oh, timeout. It's timeout. What in the world is that kind of move? It's disrespectful, disrespectful, pardon me, to those who are in the gallery supporting transgender rights and this moment of silence, which then they do right in the middle of question period. And Andrew Horvath's like, what is this? I had the guy on the ropes. A little bit of drama there at Queens Park. All right, when we come back on the Alan Carter radio program, Okay, Boomer. Is it about to be a TV show? Plus, Lowe's. What's going on with the cancellation? Is the Lowe's in your neighborhood closing down? Then, later on in the program, we're going to talk about the use of the taser and how police are trained and whether there is enough training for the use of the taser. We talk about it being a non-deadly option. But in some cases, like apparently in the case that happened in Peel Region overnight, it can be deadly. Welcome back, Boomer. OK Boomer is about to become a TV show. For the uninitiated, OK Boomer has quickly become the defining meme of 2019. An offhand put-down directed towards any older person with the audacity to tell a younger person how the world works. OK, Boomer! Turns out that the TV, or rather the attorney for Fox Television, has now revealed that that network, Fox TV, has made a trademark application for the term, claiming it has, quote, a bona fide intent to launch a TV show of that name featuring reality competitions, comedy, and game shows. Okay, Boomer. Let's bring on the Karens. Let's move to Lowe's. The American home improvement giant has announced that the will close now 34 stores across Canada, as well as restructure its corporate support staff. The acting president of Lowe's Canada confirming stores that are underperforming will close. It'll be nine stores in Ontario. And this is important for those of you who, like me who like a deal. Clearance sales begin November 21st. That's tomorrow. So don't rush out to your local Lowe's today. No deals. Plus, you might be dealing with some rather shell-shocked employees wondering what in the world is going on. Lisa Hutchinson is managing partner for J.C. Williams Group Global Retail Consultants. Is going to help me understand what is going on with Lowe's and with the big box home improvement sector. Hi, Lisa. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Is this a question of... Online sales that is taking away business from, you know, standalone brick-and-mortar stores again? 
You know, that consistently seems to be the story that people are sort of first jumping out at is that it's all about, um, you know, online coming in. But, you know, really, at the end of the day, bricks and mortar is here to stay. And I think the story is, what is the reason to bring customers to your store? So, you know, definitely um, online is a factor, but it's not just that. It, it is really the whole picture, more like the omni-channel. What is, what is, how, what is the brick-and-mortar experience and how to drive customers to your store? I, if I'm reading between the lines, you're just saying they have crappy customer service. Uh, no, 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 that's not it. Uh, it's actually a strategy. What is what is the reason for the customers to come to the store? That's, that's not the case at all. It's more than just customer service. You know, is there other reasons? Is it the assortment? Is it the entire experience that they're coming to the store for? So it's more than just customer service, although, of course, that's, a, that's an element of it for sure. I want to give you just the the stores that are closing in Ontario. I mentioned there are nine of them. These are the ones of interest to our audience. We have 48 Lowe's Place in Etobicoke. That's the Lowe's Etobicoke North that will close down. We have a Rona in Mississauga at 4141 Dixie that is closing. The Rona in Oshawa on Simcoe Street North. The Rona in Aurora the Rona in Ajax, all closing. How competitive is this marketplace in terms of bricks and mortar stores selling home improvement stuff? Well, certainly the market is competitive. You know, certainly they are going up against the Home Depots. Um, And, you know, so it is certainly a competitive marketplace. And again, it's about what is driving the customers to their stores. You know, so what is its what is its compelling strategic advantage over going to a Home Depot? And I think Lowe's has really struggled to find what that formula is. What's that key differentiator between it and its its major competitor? Um, yeah, being Home Depot. Because if you're going to one of these stores, you're in the car already. So it isn't necessarily about which one's closest or my neighborhood one. It's about which one do I want to go to. Can Lowe's survive? Obviously, they're trying to uh, close these underperforming stores and focus a little bit. But can they survive in this marketplace? Oh, definitely. There is a place. You know, the, the home improvement market has been doing, you know, quite well. Um, it slumped a little bit in the month of August, but generally speaking, you know, with people renovating their homes, the aggressive real estate market in, in Ontario, you know, certainly there is a place for home improvement, and it is about creating that compelling experience. And so it is definitely compelling. And to your point, you know, you're already in the car, but you're going to go to the place that you know is going to be able to fulfill your need. And if they're not convinced that it's a Rona or a Lowe's, um, but, you know, most of them you're citing are, are Rona stores, if you're not convinced that that's going to fulfill what you're looking for, you are going to maybe drive that few minutes further or in a slightly different direction to be able to ensure that your needs are going to be met. Lisa Hutchinson is with J.C. Williams Group and has joined me on the line to talk about the closure of these Rona and Lowe stores. Thank you so much for being on the program. No problem. Thanks for having me. This week is Anti-Bullying, or rather Bullying Awareness and Prevention Week for the TDSB. And we talk a lot about bullying on this program. 
Uh, I was bullied as a young student, as a grade seven, grade eight, and uh, had, you know, I think it still affects me to this day. And, you know, my son and I, I have a son in the TDSB, he's in grade six, and we talk about bullying every once in a while. We talk about what it's like for him at school, and he often tells the story about how they are brought in what's called a bully bench, or at least that's what he calls it. The actual term for it, I think, is a friendship bench. But he and his friends, my son, refer to it as the bully bench, as in, you sit there, you're going to get bullied. So when we talk about prevention and awareness, are we doing the right things to protect our kids and protect our young ones? And it's not just about benches. I think the bench is the least of our worries. It's more about the devices that are always in their hands. Paul Davis is a cyberbullying expert and joins me on the line. Hi, Paul. Hey, Alan. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you, although I am concerned about what my kids are doing in terms of social media with the devices that they have mm-hmm. and what that exposes them to in terms of bullying from other classmates. Part of the core of the problem is that parents are permitting their children on social media platforms under the age requirement, which is 13 years of age. And every platform states in perfectly legible grade 5 English, you will not use a platform unless you're 13 years of age. So my message to parents when I speak to them on a nightly basis is this. If your 10-year-old is on a social media platform and they get hurt, threatened, offended, insulted, uh, access to pornography, or bullied, um, parents need to feel the pain um, that their child is experiencing because the parents chose to allow the child to get onto the platform, which has now contributed to their pain. My objective every day when I speak to the children before speaking to the parents is making sure they respect the rules. And Al, you need to know, as a cyber guy, there's a ton of things that your kids can do online, which is safe, productive, entertaining. There's a career path, educational. We're allowing them to go down the path where everybody else is because some parents think that the platform is cute or, you know, they have it so you can have it. It's okay. I'll watch you. And this is why our kids are getting hurt. So, look, I can't stop a 15-year-old to be on social media because they, they're clearly ought to be on it. My message to them is a little different when it comes to, look, when it comes your way, here's what we need to do. But a 15-year-old, Alan, can process the message and the hurt much more differently than a 10-year-old can. So my objective is making sure kids never put themselves in a position to get harm by making sure they respect the rules and not allowing themselves into the position to get harm by removing themselves off the platforms they're not allowed to be on, which right now is social media. Get off it. You're not allowed on there and do everything else that can make you a really great person in life and leave a positive visual footprint and there'll be no hurt. So that's a foundation for prevention. When they are on the platforms, look, if you have a platform, Alan, and you have Twitter, I'm looking at your Twitter account right now, you know, all of us that have public profiles, we have the ability to be bullied. Why? Because we're out there and there's going to be some coward who's going to say something and they may impact you. But as adults, we can process it differently. So my message will be, number one, especially to a student who's allowed to be on there, do not respond ever to these individuals. You get wrapped up in the problem. It's going to be harder to defend you. Number two, outsmart them. Print out every picture, post, comment, chat session, screenshot. Evidence is important. Report it to a parent, teacher, principal, police officer, somebody to us and say, I need help. Last week, we honored the people that died for our freedom of speech. And I keep telling kids every day, honor them by speaking out in the greatest country in the world where you have freedom of speech and go to a trusted adult. And if you can't get help from that adult, you go to the next person and know that somewhere along the line, someone will be able to assist you. But if you don't speak out about it, it's going to affect sleep, 
appetite, schoolwork, friendships, family life, and, you know, ultimately you let the bully win. So report it and get the help you need. But they have to learn that they have the right to speak out and ask for help. Paul, what do you make of TikTok? Uh, I, I raised that one particular platform because my family and I, you know, my daughter has it on her phone, and sometimes we'll we'll make TikToks together as a family. It's a fun thing that we all do. Uh, and every time I look at it and I talk to her about it, about what do you see on there? Is there anything that's ever disturbed you? And she always says, no, no, I don't, you know, nothing's like that's on there. And, you know, maybe I'm naive. Maybe I, I shouldn't believe that. But it seems like it is an, an innocent uh, platform, and it seems like it has a, some positives. As an adult who views TikTok videos, because I have to understand that I have to live in it, uh, I find a lot of the videos very amusing. But the three primary concerns with TikTok is, number one, it's a haven for pedophiles. And if your child's on there, they're disguised in their lives under fictitious accounts. The primary concern from a mental health perspective is, kids that are eight years old on TikTok, because that's the average age of adoption, even though you have to be 13, is body image. They're looking at videos, and the kid wants to act, speak, talk, dress, and mimic what the popular TikTokers are doing. So they're developing a negative body image association because of what they see these other allegedly famous individuals doing. From a security perspective, Alan TikTok is owned by a Chinese company. Their privacy policies are far different from a North American company's policies. And, you know, if you go on Google TikTok and national security, look at how they made the news just two weeks ago under national security investigations from the United States. We don't know what's happening to the videos. We don't know where they're being retained and what they're being used for. But it is a concern that it's in a foreign land and we have no control over what's happening to any of these videos. So from a security expert, that is my primary concern. You don't want your eight-year-old creating videos being stored somewhere else. If a child is on there, body image, when they're allowed to be on there, and again, it can be a wonderful platform, 13, 14, 15 years of age, a private account, have fun with your family. If you're still okay with the videos being stored in offshore property, that's a choice you make, but at least do it securely. And don't allow these creeps into your life who look like you, act like you, speak like you. Just make sure you take what little privacy you are afforded and take it seriously. You can enjoy every platform with common sense and privacy. Paul Davis, thank you so much. Paul Davis is a cyberbullying expert on to talk about cyberbullying. Uh, this week of Bullying Awareness and Prevention Week in the TDSB. Thank you so much, Paul. My pleasure, anytime. Welcome back to the program. Police west of Toronto say a man has died after he was struck by police with a taser early Wednesday morning. Peel Regional Police say this incident happened just before 3.30 this morning in Mississauga. They say the man later died in hospital. Here is Camille Caramali from the scene. They've said that that male adult is in his 30s and there was an interaction and a taser was used by a police officer that resulted in the man uh, with uh, having no vital signs. The man was then taken to hospital where he later died about an hour later after the incident was initial ca- initially called in. Police have now brought in the Special Investigations Unit. The SIU has invoked its mandate. Now, the SIU, just in terms of background for you, it is a civilian oversight agency. Essentially, it polices the police, and uh, it invokes its mandate anytime there is an injury 
or a death in terms of an interaction with police. And in sometimes that could be anything from police who are standing nearby when someone got hurt to something like this, which is obviously much more serious, which appears to be the use of a taser that has resulted in a death. Mike McCormick is president of the Toronto Police Association and joins me on the line to talk more about the use of the taser and training for Toronto police officers. Hi, Mike. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thanks. There's been a lot of controversy over what are referred to as Conducted Energy Weapons, or CEWs. What's the Police Association's position on the level of training that your members get for the use of tasers? Yeah, first of all, like, uh, you know, as far as the level of training, uh, we think the level of training is uh, more than adequate. Uh, Our officers are are trained in the use of conducted uh, energy weapons. We have over 1,800 of our officers here in Toronto uh, trained on conducted energy weapons, but you know um, when we look at them, it, it, it's again it's something that we have supported as an association, as a membership, as a less than lethal use of force option, um, and we still believe it is very beneficial for our members and the public. Uh, you know the correlation, but and and it, as you know, this is under investigation. This death and peel. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what the circumstances around that death. Uh, with the link to the conducted energy weapon, was there drug use, was there a pre-existing heart condition, all kinds of things. So we have to wait for that information, but we fully support the use of conducted energy weapons. When tasers were first introduced in Ontario back in the early 2000s, police held a press conference uh, to show them off, and they decided that to do so, that what they would do is they would hook up a couple of reporters to tasers, and see what happened. And here is your true, yours truly, myself, <laughs> being tasered. The taser is designed to completely incapacitate a subject without causing serious injury. This is what it looks like when a person is hit with 50,000 volts. Oh! Oh! That is extraordinarily painful. That is uh, yours truly in the early 2000s being tasered. It is extraordinarily painful, but what we have found in the years since that, Mike McCormick, is it can also be deadly. Yeah, again, you know, when when I look at the stats around um, uh, what we've done here in Toronto and using conducted energy weapons and the alternative, uh, you know, where before uh, we had conducted energy weapons, we would be making a choice between using a lethal use of force option, which is a firearm. But, um, you know, for me, this, again, makes way better outcomes for our members and the public. There's an risk to any type of behavior when it's assault of our, there's a physical behavior. But, for instance, in Toronto last year, we had over 500 um, what we call use of uh, use of force um, documents filed as far as conducted energy weapon. But what's really significant about that, in over 364 percent of those cases, just the demonstration um, of, of pulling out a taser has resulted in a de-escalation of that assault of behavior. So yeah, there's there, there's an inherent risk to that type of. Uh, as you, you know, just played that clip, it is a very serious thing to get tasered. 
Um, but the alternative, uh, when we're dealing with people who are in assaultive behavior, um, where we could have it escalated to a lethal use of force option, again, I stand by the outcomes. And we're looking at over uh, several hundred uh, uses of tasers, and, and unfortunately, in this circumstance, there's death, but we have to wait to see how that is attributed. Usually, what we find is that there is uh, extenuating circumstances with either drug use or pre-existing health condition. Mike McCormick is the president of the Toronto Police Association. Always great to have you on the program, Mike. Appreciate that. Thanks. And again, I didn't mean to, you know, it's a very serious thing when somebody loses their life. And But uh, just hearing you tasered, I, I, I didn't mean to be laughing at that. Point. No, it, it does it, amuse. It, it amuses so many people. I will yeah. tell you, Mike, that the library at Global News <laughs> has that on standby to play at any time. Right, and I just want to be clear, any time that somebody in the media gets tasered, it tends to bring a smile to my face, so there you go. (laughs) Mike McCormick, President of the TPA, thank you so much. Appreciate you being on the program. Welcome back to the program. Have you ever had a bad breakup that then you thought, you know what, we still love each other? We can get over this. Lawyers say a Virginia woman is back together with her ex-boyfriend who was in court to face charges that he broke into her home and spiked her tea with methamphetamine. Now, the woman feared someone was coming into her home. She set up a security camera. A person, appearing to be her ex-boyfriend, was seen taking the camera. Then he was arrested. The woman says she drank some tea and felt unusual. Tests later showed the tea contained amphetamines. But it all worked out, because the defense lawyer says, although it was a bad breakup, they're now back together. Tea for two. South of the border, big, big drama underway as Ambassador Gordon Sondland is testifying that he, quote, followed the president's orders to work with Rudy Giuliani on Ukraine. Sondland, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, is a key witness in the House impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump. He says that he and his colleagues did not want to involve Trump's personal attorney, but were told they had to by the president. As I testified previously, Mr. Giuliani's requests were a quid pro quo for arranging a White House visit for President Zelensky. That is former ambassador, or pardon me, ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, who is testifying, and Reggie Cicchini is our global national correspondent, who is a nice fellow, but if you if you bother him, he will leave a bunny in your pot. He is, you are not, do not jilt Reggie Cicchini. He's on the line. Hi, Reggie. Good afternoon, sir. What is going on down there, and how important is this? This seems to be like a big, big deal. It is a big deal. Uh, Republicans right now are trying to undercut and undermine some of the testimony so far as being uh, a little ambiguous and a little unknown, uh, and that's simply because the State Department and the White House did not provide Ambassador Sondland with the notes that he had requested. That said, uh, the testimony that was given this morning, especially in his opening statement, 
statement uh, was damning. He used the words, yes, there was a quid pro quo. He used the words, yes, we were acting uh, at the express direction of the president of the United States. And this is particularly what Democrats wanted to hear when it comes to this pressure campaign uh, led by the president and Rudy Giuliani to uh you know, push forward the president's personal political uh, dreams uh, linked to Ukraine. There has been some suggestion that Sondland was engaged in, quote, unquote, rogue diplomacy. He addressed that in his uh, his uh, testimony today. We kept the leadership of the State Department and the NSC informed of our activities. Reggie, that is Ambassador Gordon Sondland speaking this morning, and the president had a few brief remarks today. He was on his way from the White House, I understand? He was. He's uh, heading to Texas for a uh, uh, Keep America Great Again rally tonight. Uh, worth noting, when the president was leaving, he made a comment saying he doesn't know Ambassador Sondland very well, despite the fact that Sondland was a mega donor to the Trump inaugural and was uh, ultimately appointed to this posi- or nominated for this position with no qualifications. The president was also holding a pad of paper in his hand uh, that had big Sharpie writing saying over and over, uh, I want no quid pro quo, I want no quid pro quo. So he had kind of like a do not congratulate note sitting in his hand. Uh, that said, look, when Sondland said that he kept the uh, administration uh, basically you know, informed as to what was going on at all times, he was throwing under the bus the National Security Council. He was throwing under the bus the Secretary of State, the Vice President, the, uh, the uh, acting Chief of Staff to the President right now, basically saying, look, everybody knew, everybody was in the loop, uh, and, and, and this is kind of what Democrats are latching onto, but Republicans are trying to argue, well, maybe not everybody was in the loop because there were certain things that were not said and there's there's a lot of muddy water sitting around the republicans right now what happens next for the rest of today well i mean look this this uh testimony is going to continue on probably for another hour or so and then we have a couple of more people who are set to testify this afternoon who do and do not have knowledge of the situation tomorrow there's another round of testimony from people who were close by uh to a phone call that the president had with ambassador sondland and then that's it then we head into thanksgiving break next week there will be no testimony congress people will all be back in their home districts and it's an opportunity to kind of you know digest the the thanksgiving dinner and digest the politics that people have been uh swallowing over the last kind of two weeks or so so much to chew on so much turkey on the bone left to go in this reggie cicchini is with global national and is a regular contributor to this radio program always great to talk to you reggie thank you so much thank you the the Grammy nominations, not the Emmys, the Grammys, the other ones. The Grammy nominations are, I don't know if you care about this, but here's what I'm going to do for you, right? I'm going to help you out to be a little hipper, a little less okay boomer. I'm going to tell you what's going on. Because there were a lot of nominations for an artist known as Lizzo. The breakthrough singer-rapper scoring a whopping eight nominations, including the top four awards, making her the show's top nominated act. Lizzo, whose real name is Melissa Jefferson, picked up nominations for Album of the Year with her major major label debut, Cause I Love You. Now, you're saying to yourself, I don't know anything about this. I'm going to help you here. Here's a little bit of her number one hit, Truth Hurts. That is Lizzo, nominated today for eight nominations at the Grammys. See? Now you can go about your day 
and you if you just if you run into somebody from Gen Z, you just say, How about that, Lizzo? You just throw that out. And suddenly they can't okay boomer you anymore because you're in the know. You see what I'm saying? I'm helping you. Closer to home, Sean Mendez is among the Canadian nominees at the Grammy Awards. Of course, Sean Mendez is from Pickering. He grew up there. He picked up a nod alongside his girlfriend for their single Senorita in the pop duo or group performance category. Daniel Caesar, also from the Toronto area, grabbed a fourth Grammy nomination of his career for a song called Love Again with Brandy. How about that Brandy? How about that Lizzo? You see how I'm helping you out here?